Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. In the past few months, we released around 30 interviews on various aspects of the coronavirus crisis as part of our special COVID-19 coverage. But because we prioritize those episodes due to the timely fashion and urgency of the COVID crisis, we actually delayed the scheduled release of some of our earlier interviews, which are equally fascinating and important. Uh, one of those conversations uh, was with Matt Arnold, who is the global head of ESG at JP Morgan Chase. We had a very interesting conversation about the topic of ESG, uh, which is environmental, social, and corporate governance. As many of you may know, ESG has been a discussion topic in the corporate world for a very long time, but the topic has suddenly risen to an ever more important status in the past few months in light of the COVID-19 crisis and the recent Black Lives Matter protests. On the environmental side, you have the call for corporations to move away from fossil fuel and be carbon neutral. And on the social side, you have the call for diversity, equity, and inclusion, typically known as DEI, uh, which is about promoting a more diverse workforce. And there are two aspects I would like to note here. Uh, one is the demand for more inclusive stakeholding, which calls to an end to the former principle of shareholder value maximization. So instead of just caring about the shareholders of a corporation, we should care about all stakeholders. And the second aspect I would make note of is in terms of economic policy. Uh, the COVID-19 crisis has somehow exposed this naivete of free marketeer capitalism underpinned by you Chicago-styled economists from the 1980s uh, in the sense that we clearly recognize that there is a mispricing or misvaluing of the value of essential workers, even though the ones that help us pick up the trash or uh, our nurses in hospitals are the ones that are keeping us going, uh, they actually don't get paid sufficiently. And why is that? And I think those are the, some of the issues, very urgent issues, that everybody should think about uh, in today's age. This is an old interview that we didn't get to release. Uh, it was recorded in March, and it was actually the last in-person interview I did before I had to leave Princeton. Um, maybe some of you may know uh, Princeton is not welcoming uh, rising seniors like me to go back on campus uh, in the fall. So I will only be going back in the spring. Uh, so this is the, actually the last in-person interview I'll have done in a long, long time. Uh, I co-hosted the show with uh, my longtime co-host, uh, Owen Ingle, uh, who leads our energy segment. Uh, he is also a rising senior uh, with me. Uh, he studies public policy. So both of us uh, really treasured this opportunity to talk to Mr. Arnold, uh, who is actually the a pivotal figurehead in integrating sustainable energy practices uh, into large corporations. He has many, many interesting stories to tell, and I hope you'll enjoy this interview that can hopefully be an introduction to a vast and important field of issues that you may continue to learn about afterwards. I hope you'll enjoy, and this is our interview with Matt Arnold. Thanks so much for joining me today, Mr. Arnold. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Uh, and also co-hosting the show with me uh, is my friend Owen Ingle. He's a research associate on our show and helped me uh, and Peyton open up this whole segment on energy. So thanks so much for helping out and bringing your expertise today, Owen. Of course. Excited to be here as well. Well, so, so Owen plays lacrosse at Princeton and Mr. Arnold, your son also plays lacrosse here. And yes, we, indeed. We, we actually have like five lacrosse players on our on our podcast team. So it's really exciting that we got this this thing going. Yeah. That's really great. Yeah. 
Go Tigers. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so why, why don't we just start with with a very broad question? Uh, your background, what you do at J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, what is global head of ESG? That's a that's a huge title. It's a big title. It's a it's a it's also an obscure title. Um, <clears throat> essentially, our role we're in a corporate function, uh, and we sort of look after the soft stuff, uh, environmental issues, social ethical issues issues of controversy. Uh, and in the last two, three years, the soft stuff has become the new hard stuff. So it's really a way uh, for us to kind of keep on the right path, uh, not just for our own operations, but also in collaboration with our clients. Totally makes sense. Uh, so when we talk about ESG, sustainable finance, impact investing. Uh, there's so many terms that all sounded the same to people, but you make the dis- distinction that they're actually not. Would you mind just telling us a little bit more about? Sure. Well, at, from the 50,000-foot level, they are kind of all the same thing. It's sort of a, it's a socially-oriented or impact-oriented way of thinking about finance. In the investment world, um, the, the the lexicon is around ESG. So uh, for publicly traded investments, of which there's about 90 trillion uh, globally, you have anything that's going to be geared in a social direction. It, it started with divestment from South Africa, and then it got to tobacco. And now it's an incredibly rich and sophisticated landscape of different funds, uh, indices, et cetera. About two trillion of the ninety trillion is labeled as ESG investing. Some people call it sustainable investing. Impact investing is also a, a term of art. It tends to describe private investing, as in companies that are not publicly traded, or, uh, and and then so that tends to be a more of a private equity world. But at the highest level, they're all trying to do the same thing, which is to, to create economic growth that's socially inclusive and doesn't destroy the environment. And, and those concepts are kind of recent phenomena, I would say. I, mean, I, I remember, so you just gave a lunch talk today uh, at Princeton's Benham Center for Finance, and you uh, talked about this fascinating story about there was this rage against globalization, and uh, and, and that's how you kind of eventually got, got involved. That was a really interesting story. Would, would you mind just telling us, telling our listeners who weren't at the lunch talk a little bit more about your experience back then? So um, call the mid-1990s. The banking industry thought of its impact as the as fair wages to employees, uh, the paper it consumed, the travel, uh, the buildings, the electricity, et cetera. And there was a real change in the, the social contract with finance around the 2000s. For those of you who were old enough, uh, the Seattle World Trade Organization talks were quite um, – a lot of activism there, and it was a little bit angry. And and that was the beginning of a change in the social contract to where a bank and an investor are now held accountable to some degree for the consequences of their capital. So if you're lending to a company that's got a heavy environmental impact, you're partly responsible for that. That's a dramatic change in in really four industries, banking, asset management, asset ownership, as in pensions, and insurance companies. And so across all those industries globally, you have experts in social issues, ESG, call it in the biggest bucket, on staff that are act as internal advisors and guides to their firms 
to try to enhance the ESG performance of the underlying of the underlying investment, the underlying borrower. Yeah, because you had a, like a fascinating story about how they picked the bank city and just started like protesting and all those activists. And so the first the the first bank targeted was was Citigroup back in two thousand two three four. City was the first to come out with a very bold environmental and social risk management statement, um, uh, and and that the Europe there was a comparable dynamic in Europe. Uh, and ultimately, Brazil, South Africa, all across the U.S., Canada, Mexico, Asia, the Chinese banks, the Indian banks, et cetera, all slightly different origins, but all reflecting the change in the social contract such that I had a small consulting firm back in those years called Sustainable Finance. We had 50 clients. All of them were banks, global. <laughs> they were really the targets. No, not necessarily. The, 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 the targeting and the activism was more of a U.S. phenomenon. The, the social dynamics in every country was slightly different. But the end result was the same, which is the notion that a bank, again, is somewhat responsible for the consequences of its lending. So you mentioned uh, your, your startup, the sustainable, um, the sustainable startup that you had. And you've been involved in a number of different roles, from the NGO startup to uh, the executive role at the World Resources Institute. You've been in small consulting firms and the massive PricewaterhouseCoopers, and now you're at one of the largest financial institutions in the world. So what have you valued most about these diverse roles, and how do you think they've kind of shaped your career path and, and how you think about things today? It's interesting. I, I've had a really fun career. I've only done what makes me passionate. Uh, and I've had the privilege to do that. There were some reckless decisions along the way, um, but and each one was was unique. And and apart from the the core theme of of principally environmental sustainability and also so, social inclusion, the the functions have been very very different. I've actually worked in the government. I started my own nonprofit focused on business and the environment. That group merged in with the largest think tank on sustainable development. I was the chief operating officer of that. I never had any clue what a chief operating officer did. Uh, turns out I don't like to say no, so I wasn't very good at it. Um, and then I, I, I started this consulting firm literally by accident, uh, getting involved in helping U.S. banks initially to, to, to sort of adapt to the changed social contract. Um, and then J.P. Morgan, who had been a client of mine and ours, uh, called and said, would I like to come – and take this role and, and reshape the way we were thinking about environmental and sustainability issues. So it's a little kooky, the career path. It's not really a path. It's more like a random zigzag, but uh, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And it's really neat how you managed to kind of uh, stay on this this path and, and pursue that passion at the same time. And on the same kind of background wavelength, I'd love to ask about your educational background because you got an A.B. in psychobiology. Uh, you got an a M.A. in international relations from Johns Hopkins University and an M.B.A. from Harvard. Um, what made it, motivated you to pursue these degrees and how do you think those have kind of shaped how you view the industry and how you viewed um, uh, your career path as well? So undergrad... I'm a huge believer. I'm also a product of liberal arts education, and I think principally what I learned in college was how to think critically. 
Uh, I'm from a very scientific family. Most of my family are doctors. I was going to be a doctor, but my mom, for some reason, talked me out of it. Um, so she said, "Go heal the earth. Don't, don't, don't become a doctor." Um, and that's really what I took away from it. My psychobiology was really cool. It was very the science around n- neuroscience back then was pretty rudimentary. My elder son is a neuroscience major, and my gosh, the how that science has changed. The MA in international relations from SAIS, that was a passion. I had uh, traveled around the world after college, and I I really was taken with the conditions on the Thai-Cambodian border, and there are all these refugee camps, and I wanted to study Thai and go back there and work in those refugee camps. That wasn't a very practical uh, career idea, but so important uh, advisors to me at the time said, hey, that size thing is fine, but go get an MBA too. Uh, and and get the best MBA you can. Um, I chose Harvard for that. That was super practical. Actually, it, it did more to sort of skill me up in ways that are super relevant to most of my roles than anything else. SICE was an absolute love, and I and I adored it, and I wouldn't change it. But so three very different sort of reasons uh, and three de- very different outcomes. Uh, I, I, why don't we just pivot a little bit and talk about your work at J.P. Morgan Chase because – uh, I, I think all those debates about investing and, and how impact investing in sustainable finance actually shaped the role. There's some interesting debates between the people who are slightly more pessimistic and skeptical about the outcome and people who are sort of really for it. So, you know, I, I read that there's a recent study that shows that global investment in clean energy have actually come down in 2018 and 2019 as compared to 2017. Uh, is is that some 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 the 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 same stats that uh, you learned about uh, from your perspective? Do you think that uh, there's any this trend is indicative in in any sense? You know, I don't. Uh, if you look at the broader trends around uh, the need for energy globally, full stop of any kind, the strong headwinds on coal, uh, uh, the emerging headwinds on other forms of fossil fuel. The need, the, the sort of declining cost of of both wind and solar, I would think that those trends will not hold up over the long run. Actually, they that doesn't track our own banking and finance business. Our, our we're up year over year uh, in in both those time frames. So I don't think there's a significant body of skeptics around clean energy. I think, I mean, all across the financial services industry, you've got banking teams being formed around green bonds, uh, which is very much focused on clean energy, uh, uh, private equity focused in that space, public equity focused in that space. So I I wouldn't be too swayed by those numbers, but I will admit that I'm not an expert at that, and I can't explain why it happened. Uh, so... I'm I'm really responding to your question as an observer rather than as an expert. T- totally makes sense. Yeah. Um. One interesting thing as well, kind of thinking about the trends in the industry, is looking at some of the recent studies that have been published by places such as Lazard. The levelized costs of energy for these renewable types are going down, and that's huge for these technologies. So, what do you think is next for them? Uh, how do you see them becoming even bigger players in the renewable space and in energy as a as a whole. So, if you look at the rates of penetration of different forms of energy, coal over wood, 
oil over coal, uh, you it's actually a pretty gradual transition. So if you think about where wind and solar were 10 years ago, they were trivial. The growth curves are radically steep. And, and as the costs continue to come down, uh, the growth curves are going to stay radically steep. But it's still, I don't know what the, the total is, but it's something like 8 or 10% of, of U.S. energy. Uh, so it's, you're coming off of a very small base. Uh, and so although the, the annual percentage is, is pretty radical, there's just a, a limit on the amount of technology, skills, production capacity for wind turbines, solar panels, et cetera. Um, and there have been hiccups along the way. There have been trade disputes. Uh, there have been uh, policy initiatives on, policy initiatives off. But the fundamental sort of secular trend there is costs coming down, volume going up. Uh, what, what about the fossil fuel industry? Because um, I, I think you mentioned something that right now the world's energy mix is about 81% fossil fuel. And back, you... you, you asked us to take a guess about the figure in the 70s, and it was also 81%. So it didn't really come down or go up. So what does that tell us about how reliable, how how dependent we are on this thing? We're extremely dependent on fossil fuels. Um, fossil fuels is the most, from a straight-up energy conversion perspective, by far the most energy-dense substances are fossil fuels. Capturing the, the energy density of the sun and converting it is 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 we've mastered that technology took a long time but the externalized impact of carbon dioxide greenhouse gases on the climate is magnificent and if you were to internalize that cost uh, you'd see a very different sort of cost pattern for fossil fuels um, having said all of that if you look at projections of uh, different climate change scenarios. There are projections that say that in order to get to a two degree warming, two degrees Celsius warming, which is believed by scientists and policymakers as sort of the threshold of safety, that we'll still have 50, 55, 60% of the world's energy coming from fossil fuels in 2040, 2050. So the notion that we're going to radically drive to zero in the next five years, we don't think is right. Um, but we need a much more disproportionate growth in cleaner energy forms, including, I would argue, nuclear, which may be a controversial statement, uh, if we're going to limit warming to two degrees. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, and I think one that's kind of agreed upon in, in a lot of circles, especially environmental circles. So what do you see as kind of the main uh, inhibiting factor in getting that fossil fuel down and perhaps the amount of clean energy up in terms of percentage? Do you see government legislation being a huge factor in the future or open uh, open market capitalism just doing its thing? What is kind of your vision for how that transition might be made? Well, the basic drivers are economics. And as long as, you know, it's a, it's a problem of, of, a, of, of a failure to price a public good or a public bad. It's like the, the classic tragedy of the commons or as Governor Mark Carney, the bank of the governor of the Bank of England said, tragedy of the horizon, we're as a species not really equipped to respond urgently to a problem that we can't actually quite see yet. And that's sort of climate change. Um, 
so therefore, governments need to have to act to internalize that cost. If they do so in an orderly manner, you could see an orderly transition to a lower carbon global economy. And Europe is taking strong measures to do that. Various U.S. states and regions are taking measures to do that. Uh, China and India are doing slightly different things around uh, disproportionately rewarding clean energy. But if governments don't take the lead and do that, we're going to have a disorderly transition, which is going to be fueled by rage and activism. Uh, and that's going to be messy. It's very hard uh, for the economy to function well uh, if there's a lot of abrupt uh, changes in the landscape. Uh, so since we are so dependent on fossil fuels, and we actually have done interviews before uh, on Policy Punchline, sort of uh, one episode was titled, Not All Fossil Fuels Are Created Equal, in the sense that not all fossil fuels are bad, and some of them that do a lot of good. Uh, so certainly, if we're dependent on it, if if we cannot become less dependent in any short period of, of time, how should we think about it from a financial investing perspective? Because you know we interviewed uh, Andy Golden, who's the uh, sort of the CIO of Princeton's endowment. He's saying if you can't really tell me how this thing's gonna go down in five or ten years or whatever, uh, how are you gonna let me make a sort of a moral ethical judgment on you know whether to invest or not? So so to divest or, or things like that. So I think the the if we don't know when we're gonna become less dependent. And if we cannot become less dependent, doesn't that skew the whole argument about divesting and uh, moving away from it? Well, if we don't become less dependent, then, as I said, there's going to be warming of three and a half, four or five degrees. Insurers that I've spoken to say the, the quote unquote, and this is a quote from in a public meeting from an insurer, uh, a four degree world is not insurable. Because you'll have so much impact of storms, droughts. Uh, Unforeseeable acute events. Exactly. Nice. <laughs> um, and that that insurance schemes will not – you can wipe out an entire insurance company balance sheet with one major event. I, I do, you know, not all fossil fuels are created equal. If you just look at greenhouse gas intensity, coal is about twice as intensive as natural gas. Now, that's assuming that there's not a huge amount of leakage in the natural gas production and transportation, which is not a good assumption. So uh, it's important when you think about the cleanliness of relative fuels. We're really talking about the cleanliness when combusted. Coal doesn't leak a lot of greenhouse gas on, the, on its way to the power plant. But that greenhouse gas intensity reflected a little bit in a downward pressure on coal globally. In the U.S., we've gone from about 50% coal in our power system in 2005-06. We're down below 30. Uh, our analysts project that we'll probably bottom out at in the 20s, maybe 20, because coal is very reliable. Uh, it's also abundantly available. So as that energy mix in the U.S. changes, the energy mix globally will change. Uh, uh, it's going to be slower in the big Asian economies because they've got a lot of coal and they have huge growth in their energy demand. Uh, it, 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 you know, in the best of all possible world, it'll be a gradual transition to where the the richer the richer economies are less and less greenhouse gas intensive, and the poorer economies catch up over time. 
Yeah, one of the recent decisions made by J.P. Morgan was that it announced that it's going to phase out loans and it's effectively ending investment in um, some fossil fuel interests, such as Arctic drilling and coal mining. And this was a fairly controversial move um, with some groups. I know some Alaskan politicians were not super happy about it. Um, but what was kind of the discussions going on? What kind of motivated those decisions? Because that's seen as a huge step forward in the uh, eyes of many environmentalists for J.P. Morgan Chase. So all the decisions that we make are risk-reward. Um, our coal business is not a big business. It, it brings on um, uh, some challenging economics. Um, there, there have been tough times in the coal mining sector. Uh, with credit quality deterioration over time. Um, in the power industry in the U.S., the power industry has has made a conversion uh, from being predominantly based on coal to being predominantly based on natural gas. That's largely a market dynamic change where natural gas is a lot cheaper. And now utility scale wind and solar are also cheaper. So, so the headwind on coal in the U.S. is actually market-based. And so... We made the decision, uh, again, on a sort of a risk-reward basis to to stop our financial services there. The Arctic is a similar one. There's a lot of risk uh, operating in the Arctic. Um, there's a lot of uh, 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 credit risk, physical risk, uh, leading to, to reputation risk. Um, and we're not the only bank that's done that. Uh, um, we are in uh, discussion with our clients in Alaska. The actual articulation of our policy was fairly specific. It does not mean we're leaving Alaska by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so we hope to maintain our business relationships in Alaska despite uh, that policy commitment. Uh, so when J.P. Morgan thinks about those decisions, when uh, you guys engage in those kind of whether it's engagement with local communities or with other environmental activists or with other banks, uh, or thinking internally through those moral ethical questions, uh, what's the kind of guiding, some of the guiding principles that you um, think about it? Because I, I remember you telling us, obeying the law is not enough you know, anymore. You kind of have to do above and beyond, but how much above and beyond? Because uh, obviously in, in, investing in private prison would be something not accept, less, much less acceptable than saying we still have to invest in fossil fuels. So, first of all, we're incredibly consultative. So, we, whenever we make a decision, there are lots and lots of different people, backgrounds, and interests engaged from the top leadership to the commercial sides of the business to the risk sides of the business, the government relations sides of the business. So, number one is these things get a lot of airtime. Uh, number two is um, our basic principle is first-class business in a first-class way. So are our clients, regardless of their industry, are they deploying best practice for that industry? And where they're not, uh, are we able to have a dialogue such that they they do? Um, so we try to we try to drive our business selection and our business relationships towards companies that are that are trying to achieve excellence in their industries. Um, and then there are things like originally mountaintop removal mining of coal. We just think, okay, that's not something we can get behind. And so then we try to ease away. We often try to do this quietly um, because we know that there are interests on all sides of every issue. And we just try to get it right. I mean, we try to get it right for our business uh, and we try to get it right for our clients. 
I, I remember you telling us that um, the European banks have kind of been doing a slightly better job than a lot of the U.S. banks in terms of, you know, making bold strides. But J.P. Morgan Chase is arguably the the one that has done the best in in uh, the U.S. So would you mind just kind of telling us a little bit about? I mean, I, I I'm not asking you to comment on each bank's performance, but uh, how are you? How do you think we're doing? So I think. Uh the European banks um, have been more broadly engaged in ESG and sustainability for longer uh, than the U.S. banks have. Our economies and our cultures are so different. I, I find, and this is just a personal observation, that American businesses are extremely commercial. Um, and, and, and therefore, if you drive with a business case that talks about growth or a business case that talks about margins or a business case that talks about better experience for clients or employees that, that you're going to win the day as opposed to, hey, folks, this is just the right thing to do. Now, of course, you always want to do the right thing. But if you have a commercial case underlying it, uh, in my again, in my career, it, it, it seemed to me that that is a better way to win the day. I don't think we'll follow Europeans, I, but I do think we learn from them. I know that we do. We have a big London business, and so it's actually staffed with a lot of Europeans. So in some sense, we are a European bank as well. I think the U.S. banks, the big six U.S. banks, we all we have a very friendly competition. Uh, I always like to think we're the best, um, uh, but you know they think so too. And frankly, the 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 metrics to keep score are are, are sort of in the in the eye of the beholder. Uh, I, I wanted to quickly follow up on that thing because uh, it's very easy to get into this "quote unquote" deregulatory spiral. In, 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 for example, in the two thousand eight. Basically, it's like saying there are three rating agencies, and if you don't, you know, give me a triple A rating for my really bad, you know, the CLOs or CDOs, or whatever, I'm I'm just gonna go to another ratings agency. So if J P Morgan Chase comes out and say we're not gonna help you underwrite this project because we don't think it's really uh, ESG friendly, uh, what prevents another bank like Wells Fargo to say, oh, we'll do it? Because we make the fee, and so it's very easy for other banks to say we're not gonna follow you, and but we're because we're just gonna get the business and make so much more money. So you kind of have to come together, right? Or else this thing crumbles. Uh, if you think about something called the Equator Principles, the Equator Principles is ninety plus banks that have adopted the same environmental and social risk management standards. Banks really like to do things together. Um, and and so in that sense, if you can get an industry-wide uh, policy framework, that's the best. Short of that, getting getting collaboration with one or two or three banks, certainly the in the U.S. banking uh, context, we're super, super connected to all of our U.S. competitors. We're very, very connected to our European competitors as well. We're in close touch with our Canadian competitors. So I, I would – the notion of undercutting on these issues actually doesn't happen as much as you would think. Mm. Um, the, the, we try to get to the same answer uh, collaboratively together. Yeah, that certainly makes sense and that's great to hear because that would uh, create totally. a tragedy <laughs> of the commons. <laughs> yeah. um, create definitely a negative effect there. So in the past, you've described yourself as a bit of a policy wonk and a lot of the policy that's coming up these days has – 
uh, convoluted ways of explaining itself. We've seen the Green New Deal in the past 12 months. We've seen a lot of democratic platforms that have come out. And frankly, it's a confusing for a lot of consumers <laughs> and regular Americans that are trying to figure out um, if we're going to go through with this transition and, and um, if we're going to help save this planet and keep below two degrees warming, how do we make that happen? So from a policy perspective, do you have any opinions on which ones you see as more politically viable or which ones you see as being successful in places such as California or places such as the uh, European Union? So that's a mighty question. Um, so California obviously has AB 32. Um, they have their, their zero emission vehicle standard. And they have their net zero standard. Um, California, and, and, and those, those kinds of policies are very evocative of what's happening in the European Union. The European Union Sustainable Finance Taxonomy was recently articulated and just uh, earlier this week uh, passed into law. So there's now a European Union climate law. Um, in the in the U.S., we've got a, a, a uneven progress, I'd say, at the state level. In the in the federal government. Um, very uneven embrace of issues around climate. We did recently join a, a climate policy initiative called the Climate Leadership Council, which calls for a carbon tax uh, and then a dividend to redistribute the funds back to the folks who are paying the, the tax as a way of compensating poorer Americans um, who don't have the resources uh, to pay. There are other policy proposals that could be every bit as effective or better. We don't love everything about these specific proposals, but we thought it was important to get on the record in favor of something. We've For seven or eight years, we've been saying that the governments need to lead on this. We need policy. We sort of thought it was time to get on, on the side of one. There are lots of detractors of every policy proposal you'll see. But as long as there's something specific to talk about, it will have a level of engagement that you wouldn't have otherwise because um, we're not talking about generalities anymore. We're talking about very specific things. And it allows the, the, the reveal of where you actually disagree. Um, so we're in that. Um, we're not super active in it, but we are supportive. We need a price on carbon, uh, and this is one way of going about it. In terms of internationally, do you see that expanding into international agreements? Obviously, we have the Paris Agreement although the effectiveness of which has been debated in the recent years. Do you see international agreements coming to fruition in, in the coming years or perhaps a re-solidification, if you will, of the Paris Agreement? What do you kind of see on the international stage as possible solutions towards a cooperative environment um, and a sustainable environment as well? So as I said, the, the, the strongest international policy frameworks now are being put up in Brussels by the EU. Um, uh, the Paris Climate Accord, um, the U.S. has not yet, but has announced its intention to withdraw. Um, I, I believe, uh, and J.P. Morgan believes, we, we came out um, uh, expressing our preference that the U.S. stay. Because whether it's flawed or not, uh, it's an agreement that 196 countries made. Um, and it it does have a long-term target of two degrees or even an aspirational target of one and a half degrees. 
So that sets your sort of 30-year beacon uh, to follow. The pathway or the the nationally determined contributions, the pathways each country chooses to get there is up to themselves. Uh, Despite our – the, the federal government withdrawal, we've had a w- large number of states articulate that like that they're going to stay in um, and and keep pursuing those objectives. Frankly, U.S. greenhouse gas emissions have come down substantially in the last ten years. That's largely because of the transition from coal to natural gas in the power sector. Transportation emissions are still rising, so we got a lot of work to do there. So, yes to the international collaboration. The Chinese are very active um, uh, on the policy front. Um, there's a very strong collaboration uh, between the United Kingdom and China uh, um, on the green finance front and the sustainable finance front. So there are a lot of uh, international bilateral cooperations. Um, there is this one global one, and we'll sort of see how that plays out. I do want to kind of hear a little bit more of your thoughts on this kind of global framework. Maybe this could be a little bit of a metaphysical question because – there are a lot of pessimists and skeptics who would say uh, global warming and climate change is something that requires global cooperation and action. But each country often have their own interests, national interests, China and the U.S., China and Russia, Russia versus U.S. and Europe, whatever. Uh, so for them to all come down to come together and, and have an agreement on this existential crisis could be tough. So, so and that is the reason why I think a lot of people really put their eyes on the private sector, the endowments, uh, the philanthropies, and say, oh, maybe they could help. But then the skeptics of those organizations say, yeah, yeah, sure, Bezos just donated $10 billion, but that's like a fraction of what, I, what we need. We need trillions of dollars of, of plans to, to actually you know, completely redo our infrastructure and rethink this thing. So where, where are we putting our faith in? Is, is there hope? Yeah, there's a lot of hope. Uh, I actually think a lot of the policy frameworks um, will be overtaken by the changes in technology and economics. Uh, we talked earlier about energy economics. And yes, exactly. Every country is going to do what's in its best interest. Um, so to the degree that the economics of cleaner energy are more favorable, it doesn't really matter what the policy framework is. You're going to drive. I mean, again, back to the U.S. power industry, decarbonized by 40 percent in the last 10 years, very part partially because of renewable portfolio standards at the state level, much more because of uh, natural gas penetration, much lower cost of natural gas. Um, I also think that different countries are going to be impacted differently by the physical impacts of climate change, and so although their mitigation efforts. Uh, will be driven by energy economics. Their adaptation efforts, what you do in response to to climate change, will be driven by how vulnerable they are. And countries are differentially vulnerable to the changes in the climate. Mm -hmm. That's certainly correct. And we see a lot of developing countries that are currently requesting more help. Uh, That was a big part of the Paris Agreement, but requesting more help in their ability to industrialize uh, their ability to get cars on the road and their economy up and running, uh, if you will. There have been some recent controversies in terms of international lending norms. Like, as a, someone with a master's in international relations, do you um, do you have any uh, sort of thoughts or opinions on um, the international lending norms set forth by places like the World Bank and the IDF, which have 
um, refused to take on new coal projects, and uh, the differing opinions of the Chinese and Japanese governments that are still willing to undergo these um, coal projects in places in Africa and uh, East Asia and, and other countries around the world. So, yeah, I do think there's a divergence of the Bretton Woods institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, um, which have definitely made very public commitments to decarbonize, including bans on coal. And then if you look uh, at the China Development Bank or the Japanese Export-Import Bank, uh, uh, different take, partly reflective, again, of the energy economics in Asia. So there's a lot of coal in some very poor countries, Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia, um, India, China. Um, so although those countries, uh, China's making huge strides uh, to reduce its reliance on coal to drive up its its production and use of solar and wind, uh, I think the economics drive some of their international investments. And there's definitely um, pressure on them to change that trajectory. Um, where the where it all will shake out, I honestly don't know. But there are all sorts of dialogues at the top of those governments uh, about kind of driving towards a cleaner energy economy. I also just want to quickly pivot a little bit and hear your personal experience with dealing with some of the activists uh, who are advocating for some of those changes. I mean, even on campus in Princeton, we. Uh, I personally don't know anybody, but we see the group called, you know, Divest Princeton, who, you know, protest uh, outside uh, board meetings and trustee meetings and talk about how to, how to divest. And you've dealt with those organizations, and you mentioned that some of those activist organizations and nonprofits and such are, are really good ones, and some of them might be making demands that are a little bit uh, too radical. So uh, would you mind telling us a little bit more about, about that front, uh, sure. your thoughts on activists? Yeah. So um, I think one key differentiator among the, the folks who criticize us is the degree to which they're informed. And I found that some of the best advocates, activists, the guys who protest against us, they're super well-informed. Um, they've got Bloomberg terminals. They've got league tables. <laughs> um, and they're very, very well-informed. Then they show up as political theater. Theater. It's it's political. It's a it's it's about it's about getting attention. Getting well. attention, which has gotten so hard in this social media driven. So they're shinnying up flagpoles and hanging banners and um, showing up outside people's homes and 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 that gets some degree of attention. We really value the conversations that we have with those folks privately. We really don't appreciate some of the activist moves, but that's their right uh, to do what they want. And frankly, it's far preferable than criticism and activism from folks who are not well-informed, who don't have the basic grounding, say, in the energy facts that 80 percent of energy still comes from fossil fuels. Um that don't have a grounding in the kind of work that we're trying to do, the moves that we've made on coal, the moves that we've made in the Arctic, the degree of due diligence that we do across all industries that we participate in. Um, and you just, <coughs> excuse me, you just never know. Um, some of them we know quite well and we meet with pretty routinely, but we're willing to talk to anyone. Uh, and we do. We talk to 
gosh, a lot of people every week. I because uh, when when I was moderating your conversation, and uh, Mr. Johnson from the alumni office introduced me as this guy who does stand up comedy, and I there's one bit I actually want to hear your thoughts on. So I I watched this bit, a pretty famous bit by George Carlin, and he was saying that uh, if you want to stop the drug trade, you just gotta bring back uh, public execution for the bankers who helped the drug lords launder the money. And once you, uh, once you start doing that, you, you, know, you, you instill the fear in the bankers and they don't help launder the money and then no more drug trade. To, which, which I think a lot of... This I, is comedy? <laughs> it's, it's really dark. I mean, it's like a nightmare. Yeah, I know. So <laughs> I wanted to hear your thoughts on, on this thing because it seemed to a lot of people that because the world is so, everything is connected to the financial system, that it seems that somehow the, the banks are, are such key players and actors in the financing, in, in connecting the, the buyers and sellers, uh, the, the mergers and acquisitions and all that stuff. So, you know, as J.P. Morgan Chase, you know, global head of ESG, when you look at J.P. Morgan's social impact, when you, when you look at all kinds of the clients that you guys serve, which are multi-trillion dollar, you know, companies uh, added up, all up together like how do do you are banks really that crucial in pivoting this change what would, would will it have to come from uh the companies themselves or or whatever uh, you can ignore the comedy bit if <laughs> <laughs> so i i think honestly it's it, everyone's got to play uh finance on its own does nothing finance i mean we have you know, spreadsheets and capital. We don't make cement. We don't make chemicals. We don't make plastic. Uh, we don't build houses. The and and it's the energy density and efficacy and cost of fossil fuel energy that's actually created modern society globally. In places that don't have it, they don't modernize that way. So, I guess our feeling. I do think that people overestimate the relative influence of banks and of finance uh, because we don't invent the project pipeline. We can only finance it if it's there. Uh, and we can only finance it if it's credit creditworthy. So our sense is that it's a collaborative effort between us in the financial industry and our clients in a whole range of industrial energies, uh, sorry, industrial industries, uh, power, oil and gas, transport, uh, uh, heavy industry, infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and and it's sort of a it's an inch a day. I mean, it's it's a dialogue that's constantly ongoing. Uh, the changes are happening, but it's sort of a simplistic to just point one finger at one group and say, "Oh, it's their fault." Yeah, that that totally makes sense, and. Uh, I, I think I, we know you're on a tight schedule, so I think we'll try to wrap up with a couple quick questions. Yeah, my last question uh, of today is going to just be, what would be your advice to some people in our shoes or uh, students looking to, to get involved in sustainable finance or uh, even ESG investing? What, what did you appreciate about your career path or what would you recommend to these students who are just starting out? Number one, best advice I ever got from my mom, quote unquote, doesn't matter what you do, just do it well. I'm welcome back at pretty much every place I worked. Uh, you need to be too. You need to crush it every day. And that's really important. That's one. And that's for anybody who wants to do anything. Two is do what you love. 
uh, I have only pursued things that I found myself really motivated to get out of bed for. Um, I I tried a few jobs and I just didn't work for me. Um, and uh, and then three, this this field is a field, but I'm not sure it's a path. I don't know how many recruiters are coming to this campus looking for ESG people uh, or sustainable people. You need to find it yourself. So, so if this is something that that folks are passionate about, they got to go out and, and make it happen. They need to network. Uh, they need to use friends and family. They need to use uh, the Princeton alumni uh, networks, uh, which are pretty vast. I have to say, I found since Je- my son Jasper's been here, the alumni networks here are much more active than schools that I've been to, uh, and and you got to get on it. Um, it won't come your way. This this field won't come your way by accident. You've got to go make it happen for yourself. Absolutely. And uh, I actually wanted to ask you this. Maybe you, you haven't prepared for this, this question. What would be one contrarian view that you have that many others in your field might disagree with you about? Uh, doesn't have to be something too controversial, but something that you believe in, but... We should all tell the truth all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's remarkable how much gobbledygook there is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know if it's just aspirational speaking or people towing the line, but I just think we'd make a lot more progress if people saw said what they believed. However, quick follow-up to that. What, what about the alternative facts? By alternative facts, I mean genuinely, because I could say, oh, clean energy investment have really come down from 2018, uh, 2017 to 2019. But some other analyst could uh, uh, find another niche of clean energy, whatever, and, and make that figure go up and, and tweak the narrative, right? And just like Uber say they're going to be profitable next year. They'll probably come up with some, some metric uh, that, that makes them profitable. So, so my point is, how, how do you actually find the fact, the truth? Respectful dialogue. Uh, this is why I talked about being informed. I'm, I'm, I, I think, yeah, alternative truth. So always tell the truth as you believe it to be, right? But be open. I'm very open to an alternate view. It's usually driven by values. And the facts follow the values. Uh, and that, as long as, I mean, I, I get along with everybody. I get along with climate skeptics. Uh, I, because it's their view of the world, and that, and I have respect for that. And 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 here are my here are my facts. Show me your facts. Let's talk about that together, and let's not hate each other for it. Absolutely, that totally makes sense. And, and since the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline, I have to ask every one of our guests at the end of the show, what's the punchline here for for ESG, for investing, for J.P. Morgan Chase, for anything? What's the punchline? Watch out, here it comes. <laughs> awesome awesome thanks so much for joining us today Mr. Arnold really appreciate you being here with thanks us. Tiger awesome thanks Owen thank you yeah of course and, and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline please follow us on iTunes Spotify uh, Twitter uh, uh, you may find us on policypunchline.com and rate and review us thanks so much for listening today You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only 
and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.